0: Welcome to the LSE. Uh, Thank you all for coming. It's a real pleasure uh, for me to present Professor Nancy Folber from the University of uh, Massachusetts, Amherst, where she also had received her PhD. Um, Nancy is one of the leading voices of feminist economics, if not the leading one. Uh, Feminist economics, surely you know, is the study of economics while thinking about issues which are typically left um, outside the mainstream, such as care work, um, occupational segregation, not only of women, but also of, of minorities, and paying particular attention to gender in both theoretical and, and empirical work. If you're not familiar with uh, Professor folber's work or with economics in general, a perfect starting point is her fantastic blog in the New York Times, uh, which I really recommend reading. It's accessible to both economists and non-economists. Um, as we will see tonight, Nancy focuses uh, in her work on the economics of care, Again, something that economists are not paying enough attention to. One of the unique traits of care is that uh, people are intrinsically motivated to provide it. It is something, as we say, we care about care. Um, A casual wisdom among economists is that if you're intrinsically motivated to do something, that you shouldn't be paid, or you shouldn't be paid much. Or incentives that we provide to people that intrinsically care about something will just destroy their motivation to work and they wouldn't do it. That's a great excuse not to pay public service workers or to pay them very little. So, um, this is obviously a hugely important issue. There is actually recent experimental work that challenges this view, uh, which had followed from Professor Folber's contribution. Her most recent book, uh, which I would also like to say a few words on, uh, Greed, Lust, and Gender, (coughs) looks at norms of behavior in the workplace, uh, such as aggression and greed, which are considered favorable when uh, exhibited by uh, male and less favorable when exhibited by female, which has a lot of... um, effect on, you know, damaging effect on both male and female, I would, I would think. Uh, again, while mainstream economics is still far behind in considering culture and norms in places like the workplace, I, I've seen already within established economics um, theoretical and empirical work trying to assess the extent which this affects our workplace, such as issues such as how do male and female workers, selecting two different jobs. And again, I truly think all this would not have been done without Nancy's influence. Professor folber was president of the International Association for Feminist Economics, editor of Feminist Economics, consulted to the United Nations Human Development Office to the American government, received numerous prizes and recognitions for this type of work. Uh, she's a fellow of the Con- uh, American Academy of Political and uh, Social Science, and I'll cut it short. We're extremely happy to have you here tonight presenting and speaking about the production of people by means of people. Let me just say that the lecture will be around 30-40 minutes. We have then a 30-minute Q&A session and, not forget, afterwards a reception in the Gender Institute, fifth floor of Columbia House. So, let me uh, welcome again Professor Nancy Folberg. Please join me.
1: Uh, Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. It's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, Working with thinking about feminist economics for the last 25 years has been a very great adventure, Um, and uh, it's one that uh, uh, I've enjoyed uh, in the company of many of the people in this room, Uh, and I think I can safely say that uh, uh, we've made collectively an important contribution and also had a very good time. So I'm really looking forward to sharing um, some ideas about it uh, with you today. Uh, this, this is a graphic that uh, was produced by a London women women's art collective sometime in the 1970s. I've never actually been able to, to track down the artist, but I, every single PowerPoint presentation I ever give is always uh, inaugurated with this image uh, because it, um, it just... Uh, for me represented a very powerful visual um, reminder of um, what I I wanted uh, to think about and study, which is the process of taking care of people, which is as much a part of the economic system as the factory that in this graphic is properly in the background. So um, the issue that I'm going to focus on today is um, an accounting system for thinking about the value of non-market work, intra-family transfers, and net taxes, and I know it sounds terribly boring. Uh, and economists in general have 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 been rather dismissive of uh, of accountants. In fact, isn't there some joke about uh, economists and accountants, like? Somebody went in to, why did you go into economics? I didn't have enough personality to be an accountant. It's nothing like that. But I think, actually, the financial crisis, um, among other things, uh, including the questions of environmental sustainability, has really alerted us uh, to the weaknesses of our current accounting system. And that phrase, off the books, things being off the books, uh, is just a very telling phrase, and it's it's very applicable not just to... um, uh, Uh, financial instability, corporate corruption, uh, global warming, but also to uh, the work of caring for other people. And uh, so it's actually quite important to sort out the conceptual obstacles uh, to developing a broader accounting system and also to fleshing it out empirically. And, you know, I've done little bits and pieces of empirical work that I'll I'll tell you a little bit about, but first I want to set the stage by really thinking about the big picture so a little bit of background in intellectual history, which I think is is interesting in and of itself, but also kind of sets the stage um, and, and also maybe helps explain the resistance uh, to this intellectual project and why this resistance is sort of deeply embedded in our Anglo-American tradition of, of political economy. Then I'm going to describe an equation. There's just one equation uh, and it's a very simple equation uh, and I'm going to to stick with it and just look at the terms in in this equation successively. So uh, uh, please, please, please treat this equation kindly and uh, don't act, uh, don't act fearful of it. Uh, it, it, This equation will, will, uh, will taste good (laughs) eventually. Once you chew it a little bit and really get the flavor of it, okay? And then a little bit about uh, data sources and examples of empirical research but I think maybe I'll leave much of that discussion for the much of that for the informal discussion. Okay, so a little intellectual history. This is a uh, the cover of a um, book that I wrote about the history of economic ideas that has this painting by uh, William Blake that I'm very fond of. Uh, why am I fond of it? Because Eve looks so brazen, so unrepentant. Um, she actually kind of looks liberated. And the serpent, rather than being an evil serpent in the Garden of Eden, um, uh, look, looks, like, a, like, looks like, like it's behind her and ready to defend her and help her advance, whereas Adam is kind of in the background taking a nap. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, in general, economic theory, for a long time, not it's actually reforming itself recently and I think changing in very positive directions. But... But for much of its history, political economy has treated the family as a kind of realm of altruism um, in contrast to the market, which is the realm of of self-interest. And and, uh, so what that meant for a long time, the family itself was treated as kind of a a black box um, in economic theory. That's less true today because we have a kind of a new um, school of home economics looking at the household from a microeconomic perspective. But uh, we still haven't really thought about the macroeconomic uh, implications of family work or family care. And that spills over to our treatment of the welfare state and government transfers. So uh, one of the interesting things about national income accounting is not just that it leaves out unpaid family work and intrafamily transfers, but also that it treats government spending as a kind of unproductive form of consumption rather than emphasizing uh, the important components of investment. Um, in uh, uh, government spending and, and public programs. Um, so, um, okay, that's just my illustration of the black box. It's from a funky economics textbook from the 1940s. And I like it because it, it looks like an old fashioned hydraulic plumbing system. Uh, and you can see uh, uh, resources going into households and coming out, uh, but not very much interesting going on inside. So uh, going back to the very beginning of kind of liberal political theory, and surely this is a point that many of you are familiar with or have heard before, but um, John Locke, in articulating his uh, kind of critique of uh, Robert Filmer's Patriarcha and inaugurating a kind of liberal tradition of thinking about uh, individual rights, articulated two very important principles. And these principles kind of shaped the whole... uh, Political and constitutional evolution of, of um, uh, much of the of the world that we live in. So here are the two principles: every man should have every man every man man <laughs> should have control over the products of his own labor, and every man should enjoy self ownership or autonomy. Problem: What if men themselves are produced? then these two principles come into conflict, right? Because I produced you, I should have control over you. Oh, but you're a man, so you have self-ownership or autonomy. So it's actually, this, I think, really helps explain part of why there is so much resistance to bringing the family and uh, family work and family care into the purview of economic theory. Is it, it kind of, It's very disruptive of some basic principles of liberal individualism, uh, and I think that's a... Um, uh, a point that resonates through the history of economic ideas in a way that um, I tried to illustrate in Greed, Lust, and uh, Gender. So, um, (coughs) some of you may have been wondering why I titled this talk The Production of People by Means of People. And it's actually, I confess, it's kind of a little in-joke, economist in-joke, but actually a lot of economists don't even get it. (laughs) So, it wouldn't be surprising if you didn't get it. But... um, now, there's a long tradition in Marxian political economy of, of struggling with the labor theory of value, which is kind of descended from John Locke. Uh, you know, that people should have, men should have control over the products of their labor. Uh, and But one of the, the conundrums of the labor theory of value is the difficulty of actually mathematically specifying a theory of relative prices in which labor could be treated as a numeraire, so that you could, you could actually. Uh, uh, examine the relationship between market prices and the relative amounts of direct and indirect labor embodied in um, commodities. And uh, Piero Schraffe wrote a, a kind of a brilliant, devised a brilliant mathematical solution to this problem in 1960 in the, in the article, the small essay that he wrote about that was entitled The Production of Commodities by Means of Commodities. And that's exactly what it was because he treated in the tradition of of political economy that I'm discussing, he treated labor as a non-produced commodity. So everything out there has labor in it, except for labor, right? And that's uh, why it works so well as a kind of numeraire for um, uh, looking at the uh, relative amounts of of resources and very different uh, commodities. So um, in some ways, the Marxian tradition Uh, exemplifies this kind of conceptual double standard that I'm critiquing. But there are some other ways in which the Marxian tradition actually tells us some things about it. And um, to illustrate that, I want to tell you a little story about workers and robots. Actually, I I also include this little story in almost every presentation I give because I like it so much because I really like robots and I think robots are the happening thing Uh, and androids. Uh, So uh, you know, information technology. So uh, just imagine, this is actually kind of a momentous tale. Imagine corporations don't hire workers, but they just purchase robots, and the robots require new batteries every week. Okay, what would it cost you to buy a robot? Well, you'd have to pay at least the cost of producing the robot before you put it to work and started buying the batteries for it. But what if there were some people out there, you know, like weird techno-geek people who just love making robots. They think robots are adorable and they find meaning, intrinsic uh, satisfaction in producing robots. Uh, Well, that's really great, because then you can get those robots for free, or if not totally for free, you can get them for a very highly uh, subsidized price. So, then what's the cost of production? Well, you only have to pay for the batteries. Well, the batteries are pretty much analogous to a wage. Right? And the wage covers the the cost to the adult worker of, you know, getting enough food, clothing, and shelter to uh, reproduce his labor power on a daily basis and get to work, but not enough, um, and there's no reason why it should be enough to cover the cost of actually producing uh, new workers. So, you, there's something in the labor theory of value that, despite its intellectual history, actually kind of helps us problematize uh, the the uh, uh, the issue. But, oh, okay, one more thing about that. Uh, This has to do with thinking about intrinsic motivation. Economists are accustomed to thinking really about individual decision-making from the point of view of individual motivation. And I think that's actually a useful tool. It's just that there are certain uh, resources that we take advantage of where motivation is really not an issue. Like if you think about Mother Nature or the environment, Mother Nature is not maximizing her utility. Mother Nature is not making rational decisions about how to supply us with this or that. Mother Nature is, in fact, not even intrinsically motivated. She's not motivated at all. It's just some kind of system. It exists out there. We make use of it. Uh, and we can't, But we can't really analyze its behavior in microeconomic terms, right? And yet, uh, the physical reproduction of Mother Nature is really crucial to our economic system. So, um, in some ways... Uh, there's a a similarity between Mother Nature and what what mothers do or what caregivers do. That is, even if they're not motivated by altruism or personal gain or or regardless of what their motivations are, there's something about the consequences of what they do that really bears very directly on our our economic system. So it's no accident that methods of valuing non-market work are very similar to the methods that environmental economists, ecological economists use to value ecosystem services. And I think, you know, this is a point about uh, not so much that optimization is wrong, or that um, utility maximization is irrelevant, but that their application is limited because they're not—it's not always relevant to the production of, of some very important, very important subset of economic resources. But I—I want to add here that you can also approach this question from a very relatively neoclassical perspective, uh, and there is also in neoclassical economic discourse. Uh, some room for conceptualizing uh, the problems that are at stake. And I I would uh, summarize this line of, of reasoning by this phrase, the paradox of human capitalism. So uh, we know, and there 's a tremendous amount of very important economic research showing that human capital is very valuable, human capabilities developed through education and experience uh, plays a crucial role in economic development, growth, innovation um, and you can it wins a very high rate of return in a competitive capitalist economy so uh, that 's uh, one of the reasons uh, educators uh, get some public resources to try and develop the human capital of of, um, of the country uh, but on, on the other hand a lot of the effort that's devoted to the production and maintenance of human capital before, especially before it gets to school is very poorly rewarded by the market uh, and so that creates a kind of coordination problem and you could conceptualize it you could treat it in neoclassical economic terms as an externality like, like uh, you treat environmental resources Something that's external to the market, but nonetheless has consequences for it. You could also treat it as kind of an incomplete contracting problem. Gary Becker actually alludes to this. Uh, you know, he says, the, you know, the problem, the problem with the world today is children get, don't get to choose their parents. True. Actually, it's, you know, it is a pretty serious problem. And, and the, uh, his fellow Chicago economist, James Heckman, has written quite a lot about the importance of early childhood education on precisely those grounds. And Heckman, um, who's ha- actually had a, a very positive effect on political discourse in the U.S., uses this terminology. He says, this is a market failure. Children can't choose their parents. This is a market failure. So there has to be uh, some... Uh, um, inter- intervention. So I, I'm actually uh, kind of uh, ecumenical about this issue, happy to approach it from a Marxian or a neoclassical perspective, but um, as you've already figured out, I'm, I, I have a little bit more affinity with the classical political economy uh, tradition. So here's the conventional, okay, now the accounting starts. Take a deep breath. It's really actually quite lovely, and I have some good pictures. And nice colors. So here's the conventional circular flow. Uh, uh, this is kind of introductory macroeconomics. There are households, there are businesses, there's government. Uh, income goes one way, expenditures go another, uh, and there's this one little uh, arrow called transfers from the government to households that um, are not actually or just kind of redistributing resources and not really creating uh, new resources. And, and So when you look at national income accounting or macroeconomics, uh, income is equal to consumption, investment, and government spending. And on we go. We can spend years um, uh, studying and conceptualizing this. But here's a revised picture. And this is the picture that I think is a much more accurate picture. Um, So there's still households and businesses in government. Right? But they're in an ocean, an ocean of water and air and natural resources, and they're taking things, unpriced things out of that environment and they're dumping unpriced shit into that environment. Okay? And uh, we don't know exactly what the uh, you know, directionality or level of these flows are, but we have good reason to be concerned about the level of negative externalities being imposed on the environment and the resource depletion that is taking place outside of a market, kind of outside of a market logic or, or, or market economy. Um, and then we also see within households uh, inside that what was previously treated as a black box, there are a lot of transfers. Not just transfers from the government to household, but they're transfers between men and women. They're transfers between parents and children. They're transfers back from children um, to parents. And those are all related to those government transfers uh, in, in a significant way. They're not, really, uh, they're not market transactions. And in, I have intentionally drawn those red arrows, the market arrows in this picture, as relatively small. And quantitatively, compared to these other transfers, actually they are relatively small. So uh, the market is a very important part of our economic system, but um, it it doesn't really dominate in terms of of resource flows. So uh, one of the instruments that we use now to look at non-market work is is time-use data, time-use surveys. Time-use surveys are are based on uh, asking a, a representative sample of the population to recall what they did the previous day. So when did you wake up? What did you do? How much time, you know, did you spend time traveling to work? Uh, did you spend time cooking, preparing meals? Did you spend time caring for children? So forth and so on. And you can construct uh, pretty good measures. There's now roughly a hundred times as much uh, time-use data today as there was ten years ago. Rapid proliferation, very very uh, good data, not uh, not flawless. Has, you know, I have some serious quarrels with some of it. But in general, it's a very rich resource for looking at unpaid work. And I just wanted to share share with you, this is a a particularly uh, compelling way of thinking about time use data. And what it's it's showing you is the percent of people who are engaging in a certain activity at a particular time of day. So blue is sleepy time. So 4 a.m., Almost 100% of the population is asleep, and then everybody all over the world gradually wakes up, right? And they go to work, and that red uh, section of the graph shows people going to work and the average number of people who are engaging at work at that time of day. But they also do household work, which is that green area. And as you can see, the green area is uh, roughly comparable in magnitude to that red area, And this is consistent with time-use data from many, many different countries. Um, The the relative similarity in terms of total hours between market work and non-market work. And um, then, uh, actually, this is data from France, a country where people take a lot of time to eat meals. (laughs) And uh, you can see the... Uh, a little window into the quality of French life. That white area around lunchtime, a lot of people are eating something very salade de jasiers, you know, something really special. And then um, some people continue to snack recklessly throughout the afternoon. And then at dinner, they're they eating more. So it's it's called a tempogram, and I just it's just a nice kind of way of thinking about the metabolism of 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 time and what what we can do with it and and why it's important. So. I just That's why I wanted to share it with you. So uh, in, in my experience, there's often a, a fair amount of, of resistance to measuring or valuing time devoted to non-market work. And uh, I get a lot of objections, so I like to inoculate against the objections beforehand, very briefly. So it's not because I think non-market work is wonderful or that anybody should necessarily feel like they should do more of it. It's not because I am you know, succumbing to commodity fetishism and I think we should have we'll think of everything in money terms. Uh, that's not it either. It's not an act of economic imperialism. I am not trying to intrude on sociology or anthropology uh, in a way. It's just an accounting problem. It's an accounting problem. We want to understand our... The way in which we produce and distribute resources. And non market work, intra family transfers, and government transfers are very large relative to market income. So we should be thinking about them in a more systematic way. So here comes the equation. Okay, so why is almost always income? And why is on the left hand side of that equation? And the first term is the money that you earn from the market. So it's the wage rate, your individual I, so WI is your wage rate, or we could sum that over a group of individuals, times the number of hours that you work in the market in. Okay? So you're earning five pounds an hour, you're working ten hours a day, you multiply that, that's your market income for the day. Okay. That's actually the figure that most economists focus on. We could add in government transfers or add in income from capital, but we're going to just leave them out for the time being because it's kind of an unnecessary complication. This is just a simple model. Economists actually really like you know, simple models with, with straightforward assumptions. So um, we're just going to keep it as simple as possible. But now what we're going to do is we're going to add in three terms, and then we're going to talk about each of those three terms in sequence. So the first term is um, the implicit wage for household work. And right now, I don't really care how you value it. There's a lot of different ways, a lot of interesting controversy over how you should value it, how you should determine WHI. Very, very interesting question. But let's set that aside for now, and let's just say we're going to measure it the same way that we measure market income, the number of hours times the implicit wage rate. So if you wanted to, you could think of it as what it would cost you to hire somebody at prevailing market wages to do the unpaid work that, that you're doing. Okay? So that's using data from the time, a time use survey or as in the tempogram, and it's adding that in to, to uh, your measure of income. Now, you're going to look, this is again inside the black box, um, think about this income in individual terms. So you, as a parent, are probably transferring some of that money income to your children, or you might be getting some uh, transfer from your parents. And these inter-family transfers are, invisible to, are largely invisible to our national income accounting system, but it's actually quite relevant um, to how much money you have to spend on yourself, whether you're supporting a bunch of dependents or whether you are yourself a dependent being supported by others. Right, And then uh, we're going to add in transfers from government, uh, GI there, uh, but we're going to define those transfers in a little bit different way than they are defined in a conventional model because we're going to insist on looking at this model over the life cycle, not at just one point in time. So if you think about it, what are the, in the, this equation, what are the differences uh, for a child, for a working-age adult, and for a retired person? Okay, well, in the society we live in, children don't normally work for a wage, uh, and they don't typically do a lot of housework, uh, although they may, as they become teenagers, they might start doing a little bit. But mostly what children are getting is some F.I. from their, from their parents or from other family members, and they might also be getting some G.I. because they might be going to school or getting uh, public assistance in some form or, or another, right? Uh, and, the, and children themselves are not paying taxes, Okay, so that GI, by the way, is a net term. It's the difference between benefits received and taxes paid. Okay, so what happens when you're a working-age adult is you get a job. So there your WIMI grows, your market income grows, and you do some non-market work, and you may live with somebody who does some non-market work, and you may live with somebody who transfers money to you or somebody that uh, performs unpaid labor on your behalf. So that FI, inter Transfer, is going to include transfers of, of direct services of household work as well as uh, cash income. And if you're a working-age adult, you're probably paying more in taxes than you're getting in benefits. So uh, that G-term might be negative. But if you're an elderly person, you wouldn't have much market income. You might or might not enjoy some household services from another family member, and you're likely to get a, a fairly large amount of GI in the form of uh, public pension um, or private pension payment and uh, also uh, provision of services like, like health care or, or something like that. So, so it's a very, very simple model, and you think, look at that. It's like, God, that's so obvious. That's really not a big deal to add those in. Uh, how could anybody possibly disagree with that? Yeah, how could, wh- how could you possibly disagree with that? Well, let's just look at some policy issues that are really uh, confounded by the failure to look at those other terms. So I, now what I wanna do is convince you that this is actually fairly momentous redefinition of income in terms of the way you think about public policy. Almost every form of public assistance that we provide in the UK and the US is targeted or affected by the level of family income, and family income is typically defined largely in terms of earnings, the earnings that are available. Okay, so just imagine two families that are otherwise identical. They, both families, two adults and two children. Both families have an income of $30,000 a year, or 30,000 pounds, doesn't matter, Right? So we treat those families uh, exactly the same in most public policy programs. Okay, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit. There's some complicated tax and transfer issues that might be a little bit different. But in general, I'm pretty willing to stand by that claim that they're treated as pretty similar. But imagine that in one of those families... Uh, both adults are working full-time, and they're each earning $15,000. And in the other family, one adult is specializing in market work, and one adult is specializing in non-market work. Which family do you think has the higher living standard? Well, the family that has a stay-at-home homemaker doesn't have to pay for child care, uh, probably produces more of its own meals has fewer expenses in terms of commuting to work um, or work-related expenses. So that red term up there is almost certainly greater for a family with a stay-at-home homemaker, even if, as in this numerical example, the dual-earner family is actually working more hours overall to try to spend time with their children and take care of their house in addition to doing market income, they're not, it's very unlikely that they're able to compensate fully for the fact that they're both working full time uh, in wage employment to achieve the, the same standard of living. So, uh, when we target families based on their market income, um, we're not really measuring their standard of living very effectively. Well, why does that matter? Well, I think it helps explain a lot of the resistance and resentment that you see among working class uh, families to income targeted or means tested benefits. And it fits very naturally into the debate over providing universal benefits versus means-tested benefits because it suggests that one of the bad things about means-tested benefits is that they're unfair because they're not really measuring accurately uh, the standard of living of of the families uh, um, that are involved. And um, there are other reasons to be critical of means-tested benefits. They impose a pretty high marginal tax rate on, uh, on market income, but I think the, this point really speaks to a, a lot of the uh, 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 political distributional conflict that we see in the middle, between the middle and the bottom of the, of the income distribution. Not that it's easy to solve that or make that go away by simply adopting a new accounting system, but just to point out that, well, we're not really measuring living standards as accurately as we, as we claim to be. Okay, here's another issue. Trends in income inequality. Uh, a lot of evidence that inequality in both the U.S. and the U.K. has increased over time. And some people have done a a little exercise uh, to try and determine, well, what's the impact of women's entrance into wage employment over the last 40 years on income inequality? Has that made income inequality better or has it made it worse? And it turns out that this is actually kind of a complicated question because it depends on what women earn relative to men, and it also depends on, on which women marry which men, And so there's kind of a debate about um, whether, you know, uh, what the effect is. And of course it fits into a kind of discourse about feminism, you know. Oh, feminism is, is a kind of, has benefited upper class women and it's, it's really, you know, had some very negative distributional effects. I'm not really interested in that debate. Well, I'm interested in it actually I think it is really interesting and important but the debate itself is very uh, misleading because in all of these statistical measures the contribution that women make married women make to household income is basically treated as zero if they're not working for a wage so the whole statistical analysis and disaggregation is looking at adding in women's market income and not thinking about the work that a stay-at-home homemaker might be doing well uh That's kind of crazy because that term, the value of household work, W-I-H-I, that's a lot more equally distributed than market income is. Uh, Of course, it depends partly on how you measure it. But in general, there's less variation in the value of non-market work uh, than there is in the value of market work. So the difference in the productivity of a college-educated mother and a non-college-educated mother might be significant, but she's not ten times as productive. Uh, But she probably earns about ten times as much on the market. Uh, So, I mean, in a way, I mean, think. So, what this means is that if you if you add in some kind of valuation term to uh, for non-market work to household income, that has an equalizing effect uh, because you're adding in kind of roughly the same amount to a lot of family uh, income. And so, actually, a lot of people shake their finger at me about this. You know, oh, you—if you value non-market work, you're going to make things look more equal than they are. Well, why should I don't, you know, why should we care about that? I mean, what we want is an accurate picture of trends in living standards over time. And the interesting thing about this exercise is that yes, valuing non-market work makes standard of living standards of living look more egalitarian today than they than than just market income alone. But it makes the trends look a lot worse, right? Because back in 1950, when almost all households had a stay-at-home uh, homemaker, uh, you know, you're know, you equalizing the distribution of income because you're taking every man who has different wage income and you're adding to that man's income the value of some household work that's approximately the same. So you, if you perform this exercise, and, and I actually have struggled with some empirical estimates um, uh, although not you know not um, uh, it 's harder than it 's harder than it should be um, to do this, uh, but I think there's pretty strong a priori reasons to see that to to believe that it really has a very uh, uh, disequalizing effect, so that really al- would, would really alters our perception of of uh, a macroeconomic trend that 's gotten a lot of attention okay. Uh, policy-relevant example number three. Look at the way the United Nations um, tries to assess the position of women in uh, countries and arrive at cross-sectional measures of women's empowerment. I mean, what what they tend to use are measures of kind of participation in the market economy or in the, the public economy, like women's relative earnings, their participation in professional and managerial occupations, their representation in government, and you see with capitalist development, Uh, In general, an increase, uh, very uneven, uh, you know, in some ways uh, not as predictable as you might think, but kind of a, a general pattern over time of women's empowerment. Well, what's left out of this picture? F. F is left out of the picture that in modern capitalist societies, you see many more women raising children on their own and taking responsibilities, financial as well as temporal responsibility, for the care of dependents on their own. So if you look inside the family and you ask how much of that income are they spending on dependents, uh, it's, it's a very large number, and it's very relevant to assessing the relative well-being of men and women simply because women in general devote a larger share of their market income and their non-market work to the care of children um, and the elderly. So you, you really need to look at those inter-family transfers of income and time to get an accurate assessment. Okay. Um, one last example that is looking at G... Um, And here's where I'm going to show you that thinking about government transfers over the life cycle makes a really big difference. In in most measures of of what you spend in taxes and what you spend and what you get in benefits are done in the cross section. Even in the cross section, it's pretty hard to figure out. Like, okay, you know you may know what you paid in taxes this year. Probably you don't know exactly. But you'd probably sort of know, right? But you don't really know what you've gotten in benefits. Right Because a lot of the benefits you get are indirect, like social insurance, you may or may not have utilized the national health services this year i don 't know roads, you know how do you figure out what you're, you're, what you 're getting from your taxes in terms of public services it's actually pretty hard to figure out in in, um, in the cross section, which is I think one of the reasons that people uh, are get very cranky about paying taxes it 's not really clear to them what they get for it but um, over the life cycle, that calculation becomes way, way, way more difficult. And the way you think about it over the life cycle is really momentous. So in the U.S., we have uh, the, a group called the Tax Foundation that publicizes something called Tax Freedom Day. Or no, do you have Tax Freedom Day in the U.K.? Has anybody ever heard the term Tax Freedom Day? Okay, well, Tax Freedom Day is, imagine that starting January 1st, you sent all of your earnings to the government to pay off what the government you know, requires you to pay you know, as a slave of a runaway uh, uh, government that's infringing on your personal rights. Okay? So how long do you have to keep handing over everything that you earn, which should be yours by right, remember John Locke, uh, to the government? Okay? What day in the year will you be free, liberated from this expropriation of the products of your labor. Well, in the U.S., the aggregate tax rate, this is looking at federal, state, and local taxes, is about 30% of market income. Okay? So, you can do this math. 30% of the way through the year, Tax Freedom Day comes. So, it kind of, kind of comes in early April, about when income taxes are due. So, it gets a lot of publicity. Tax Freedom Day came later this year. Yet another sign of of uh, runaway government spending. Okay, think about this instead as tax, think about a a different concept, tax payback year. Tax payback year is, let's just imagine that you calculate everything that was spent on you from age zero until you completed your education. And that when you start paying taxes, what you're doing is you're paying down the debt that you have accumulated from the transfers made to you by government, how long do you have to keep on paying taxes to pay your fellow citizens back for what has been spent on you? And, of course, uh, economists among you will immediately recognize that a lot depends on the interest rate that you calculate for this loan. But let's say you take a pretty reasonable real interest rate of 3% and make this calculation. And I can refer you to some of the technical um, foundations of the assumption. But in general, it takes about 17 years for a college-educated adult earning average wages, paying average taxes in in the U.S. to to pay back what has been spent on them. But that's a very different concept of of a tax, right? It's a repayment of an obligation that... um, over which people had exercised no individual choice. It's not consistent with that liberal individualist idea of human agency and optimization because, again, Gary Becker, you didn't choose your parents and you also didn't choose your government, right? Um, So um, I think that actually has pretty big implications for the discourse about public spending and government spending. Um, Okay, well, there's there's some more slides in here. I, I think... Surely, don't you think four, four policy-relevant examples is enough? Maybe we should, Let's just take a breather there. And if you want to come back to uh, thinking about Social Security uh, is a, a, another one. Uh, basically, the point there is if you cut public spending on the elderly, probably private spending on the elderly will go up. So uh, that is going to complicate your, your, your calculations in an important way. And uh, a related theme is that... Uh, which I mentioned at the beginning, is that you want to think about um, investment uh, as well as uh, consumption. Okay, and I I think I've already mentioned some examples of empirical methods. A lot of them rest on time use uh, and valuation of non-market work, but they also uh, are related to different kinds of of government budgets and reconceptualizing, redesigning the way that we think about uh, public spending and being more attentive to intra-family transfers. So uh, it sounds very, uh, you know, uh, uh, accounting can sound rather dull, but it's really at the heart of what uh, our economic system relies on. And I hope I've persuaded you to to look at it in a, uh, a more creative light. Thank you.
0: Thank you. This has been really illuminating, and again, the power of one equation <laughs> is amazing. Um, so we're uh, open for questions now. Um, there should be a microphone around, but I think it's a pretty small auditorium, so we can try and even speak without it. But. So any questions? Can I start perhaps uh, by, um, you know, perhaps the mainstream of economics and not all of economics is uh, mentioning, I think, intra-family transfers, but, you know, economists would take into consideration that investment in children, for example, would pay off as they would pay, you know, they would get higher wages uh, in the future, okay? So this is something that our models would take into consideration. And as you said... Governments do take into consideration investment in early childhood, perhaps not for the right reasons, but it is taken into consideration and we are provided with child benefits, uh, free nurseries in in the UK from uh, the age of three or four. Free schools, uh, schools that you know, essentially we don't pay for. Uh, So perhaps you know, perhaps it's not for the right reasons, but it is something that does happen in practice. So no, absolutely. Um, Actually, I don't. Semantic. Yeah, I hear what
1: you're saying, and I don't think it's necessarily for the wrong reasons, but it's often portrayed as we are doing this for social reasons or for moral reasons, and I think it's not uh, uh, conceptualized so much as part of the economic uh, system. Uh, kind of the the circular flow of the economy per se. And I've actually been very heartened by a a lot more attention among neoclassical economists to the family and to individual uh, resource allocation in the family. But I think it's often couched in terms of a theory of individual optimization that is uh, kind of based on assumptions of perfect knowledge and perfect foresight that are are just not really realistic over the lifetime of, of an individual. So um, I guess I would say, in my view, transfers to children are not really governed by the maximization of a dynastic utility function where you're trying to weigh the happiness of your great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren uh, against your consumption decisions today. And I, I mean, I think there's something particularly implausible and improbable about the notion of a dynastic uh, utility function. It's hard enough... To optimize, like what you're going to eat for lunch, uh, and I think optimization is relevant, but I, I don't think it need, you know I don't I think it's it's just not plausible to me that you can describe uh, individual decisions to invest in children as a, a form of either utility or or uh, uh, maximization or or otherwise. Uh, Wendy. Uh,
2: thank you. Um, I I think my question is probably going to reveal why I was such a lousy economist, because every time I look at an equation, I see the value of it, but then I immediately want to complicate it. Um, And one of the things that struck me is you're talking a lot about parents and children, which is really interesting. And a lot of neoclassical and new home economics people tend to see the family as an area of altruism and the market as an area of selfishness. But actually, when you look at your family, they also, when they get into the family they treat parents and children very differently from uh, partners. So when you look at parents and children, they have perfect foresight. But if you take a life cycle model to to interactions between spouses, your wage depends on how much you've worked before. So original allocations of market and homework have implications over the life cycle, which then affect bargaining power. And you're taking the individual transfers, the FI is given... Which actually are are a power relation and and
1: a much more sort of okay. Just just don't think of this as a causal. It's not a causal. It's just an accounting model. No, I I realize that. So if you specialize, if you're a a housewife and you specialize in non-market work, and you spend 15 years out of the labor market, relating, you know, raising two children, and your husband divorces you. That changes your FI. Absolutely. Uh, Okay, so there are a lot of implications. Marital decision-making and marital stability are going to affect your individual FI.
2: Absolutely, and I kept reminding myself that this was an accounting equation, but as soon as you take it to the policy realm, it's more than an accounting equation because when you're talking about how you should reward people who have two incomes relative to one and a lot of the issues attached to it, have a lot more complicated stories yes. underneath many of them. Yeah,
1: absolutely, because there are a lot of causal linkages that, yeah. that that you absolutely care about. So there's no prescription in here yeah. for how you. It's just a, a point that which that, uh, that, 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 uh, sure. It, it's really a point about transparency. Whatever you think our, our investments, you know, however you think public assistance should be targeted, uh, you know, how, whatever you think is the appropriate level of government spending. Surely, greater transparency about the overall effects of living standards would be a good thing, or, or maybe not. I mean, that's kind of a modernist, you know, rationalist, modernist, <laughs> economist argument for trans... But basically, this is an argument for, for, a different, for more transparency.
2: Yeah, and, yeah. and that, that point's very well taken and very clear. Yeah.
0: Question here. Um, do you hear me? Yes, I, ca- I can hear you, Yes. I really enjoyed this. I have uh, two very quite quick questions. One is uh, in, if, you, if it gets down to a problem of accounting, how would you calculate the wage for housework? And would
1: this effectively then change? Uh, because if you link it to issues of productivity, of course, that will you know, change per, yeah. in class terms.
0: That would be one question. And the second would be, how would this be placed
3: in the context of other things that families have discussed, like the Wages for Household campaign, yeah. and also the problems that were related to that in terms of the threats
1: of uh, locking women into, um, uh, into the home work.
3: again? Yes, right. yes. Right. Yeah, right. Thanks. Uh,
1: yeah, those are, are, are really good questions. Uh, there, have been, there is now actually a pretty substantial literature trying to integrate the value of unpaid work into national income accounts. The Eurostat has supported those efforts. OECD has supported those efforts. Uh, uh, U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis uh, has constructed satellite accounts for the, for the U.S. of unpaid household work. And in general, the methodol- preferred methodology for national income accounting is a quality-adjusted replacement cost, so what would it cost to hire somebody to do work of comparable quality um, to the uh, work that you're performing? And the best you can do with that is a, a very crude approximation. But the more sophisticated analyses take, uh, look at different activities, like you might look at household management, cooking, childcare, and you would apply to those a different w- wage rate to every activity. So you have a vector of wage rates and a vector of of activities, so you can arrive at a pretty, pretty precise uh, measure of the quality-adjusted replacement cost, and treat that as a plausible lower bound estimate of the value. It's probably a lower bound, and I think you need to emphasize that. But this is happening now. This is, you know, this is basically a process that is well underway uh, uh, in, in many countries around the world. The development of this satellite uh, accounting system. For other purposes, let's say not national income accounting, but for thinking about your own lifetime decisions, uh, the value that you might place on that labor might be very different. Uh, You might want to think about the opportunity cost over your lifetime of specializing in that work. And that opportunity cost could be much higher than a replacement cost estimate. And so you might use a different methodology depending on the question that you are asking. And whatever question uh, you ask about the valuation, the question of who should pay for it is really kind of a separate issue, and it's not one that the model really gets at. So the traditional Marxist wages for housework argument was that employers should pay it, because employers are getting the little robot, the cute little you know, biological robots to hire, so they should be paying the cost. But I think that there is... Uh, a much broader case to be made for seeing those benefits, seeing those costs uh, of raising children in particular as kind of social costs that uh, represent a kind of intergenerational contract. So the older generation is helping support the younger generation uh, and educate them in return for a claim on the earnings of adult taxpayers that will help fund the health care and pensions of the older generation and that's the, the kind of language in which a lot of discussions of welfare state and, and public spending are, are couched. Um, and um, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, this is really a, a really important reason why children are not just consumption goods. So, you know, the the standard neoclassical treatment of children is that they're consumption goods. Like some people have kids, some people buy sports cars. Some people uh, have kids. Some people have golden retrievers. I don't have children myself, and I have pets. I, I love pets. Uh, so to say that children are pets, you know, okay, there are similarities between children and pets. <laughs> I, I get it. There are similarities. But, um, you know, this actually came up in discussions of the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. Greg Mankiw, who's a famous economist who teaches at Harvard, said, why, are we, why is the Affordable Care Act providing... Uh, health care for pregnant women and mothers. This is an individual choice. If people decide to have children, it must be because they get utility from it. They get utility from it, they should pay for it, right? Uh, And the, but as the equation shows, you as a citizen of a country actually have, through government, a claim on the future earnings of everybody else's children. They are gonna grow up and be taxed to help support you in your old age. So there is already a transfer. Those costs already are socialized to some extent. That is what the welfare state does. The problem is the welfare state doesn't do it very well and it doesn't do it in a very transparent way and it's difficult to have a meaningful debate, especially with people that you disagree with politically. Uh, It's hard because you, you, you don't know, you don't have an equation. Not that the equation, you know, <laughs> solves the problem, but it, it could help. Yes. yes sorry.
0: Was, uh, Nancy, sorry. Oh, was sorry, sorry, over here.
1: Yeah. Duke yeah. Yeah. it out. Okay. Um, so
2: I'm interested in this from a development yeah. perspective, and yeah. you mentioned um, that this equation minus the Fi, if I remember correctly, was being used for the UNHDR, what and I can see of? it as an interesting unit of measurement, possibly... Um, kind of in juxtaposition to a GDP. I don't know if it can be used like that, so that's my first question. And then the second
1: is, has this FI been used at any point in any developing countries, and how has it worked? How do you measure it? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Not FI, but I think in this, um, uh, I actually wrote an article about a gender empowerment measure that you might use to supplement the traditional measure. And uh, the measure that I proposed was asking how the cost of caring for dependents was divided between men and women. So how could you calculate that? Well, you could, you could make the very generous assumption that in married couple households, uh, the costs of caring for children are equally shared, uh, which is a very generous assumption. Uh, there's a lot of research that suggests that women work much longer hours in order to care for children after contributing to family income but you could make that assumption and then you could look at the number of children living in households maintained by women alone and you could take into account the child support payments that some, a very small number of them get from non-custodial fathers, right? And you could use those numbers to calculate what percentage of the private costs of raising children are born by, by women or men. I think that would be a really interesting exercise and it's not a far-fetched empirical task. You can also do that, but for the elderly, by the way, which is increasingly increasingly relevant. Um, And um, one of the gendered dimensions of that is that many men marry women who are younger than they and who have a longer life expectancy. So a lot of men in their older years enjoy a lot of care services from their wives, but their wives outlive them and become you know, are the recipients of much lower intra-family care transfers as a result of that difference in longevity. So that introduces a kind of gender wedge in the old age care uh, dimension.
2: Um, I had a question, which um, I was trying to, uh, you know, transfer this whole exercise to a low-income country. Yes. Now, the tax benefit system is very different, obviously. You know, there's no benefits of the kind you're talking about but one of the things that struck me about that example of two uh, income earners going out and then a, a smaller amount of housework and therefore being less well off than the full time carer yeah. is that one of the things that the two income earners might do with their money is by labour saving technology so yes. if you've got a woman who, if she stayed at home, would be, you know, traveling a long way to get water
1: and yeah. fuel, etc. so it,
2: it wouldn't work quite as easily.
1: Oh, so no. Right. You, yeah, you, you would want to... I mean, I, I left capital income and, and also... You, really what you need is a household production function. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you don't really want to treat the value of household product as just, a, you know, hours times uh, uh, wages. You want a household production function. But I think... It's very telling, you know, uh, there's a lot of evidence that technological innovation reduces time and housework. And we see that in developing uh, countries. Uh, But it's also very clear that care activities, caring for children and caring for the elderly, become a much larger component of that equation with development. And I think there are genuine limits to... uh, technical substitution there. That that's what is so interesting about care work in general, that the kind of face-to-face hands-on dimension of it uh, leads to less substitutability. And I think, in fact, that's what's exerting a lot of the pressure on contemporary living standards in the affluent countries. It's not the demands of housework, um, per se. It's the demands of this very labor-intensive activity of, of care Yes.
3: Um, I also got two questions. Um, Just briefly, I'm just um, stimulated by your equation thinking how one would apply the insights from this analysis to the issue of migrant labor. Because if you go beyond the closed economy um, and you take, as you say, a life cycle approach, the inter trans- intergovernment transfers um, are not necessarily the same governments that... I mean, it's just different, and so... Well, the,
1: okay, I think... I'm sorry, let me, let me answer that, and then you can ask your second okay. question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, <Hurry up. laughs> you know, from a macroeconomic perspective, the optimal international migration strategy is to admit only... Healthy college-educated workers who have contractually agreed never to marry and uh, to go home at age 55. <laughs> that would be... Inor- I mean, then you'd, you wouldn't have to spend any money on schools. Your healthcare costs would be reduced. Your government pension costs would be... You could just... And then you could... You, in return for allowing them into your high-wage regime, you could just tax them. You could basically support your entire... Uh, G by taxing immigrants and actually, you know, some Middle Eastern countries. You think this is a, 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 a far-fetched science fiction strategy, but you know, look at look at the migration regimes in some of the uh, oil-rich nations of the Middle East, and it's actually quite—they've uh, kind of figured it out. I, I, I hope I'm not. I hope I'm not giving them any ideas, further ideas. Uh,
3: no, I mean, I agree the generational and the daily reproduction of labor take place under very different yeah. production regimes, but I mean, I think that's kind of politically quite an important argument. But the other issue that is befuddling my brain is that, in a sense, you know, a lot of feminist economists' um, energies have been put into disaggregating the household. Yes. And yet, in a sense, what you're coming up with is a an accounting model um, in which, which is for the whole household and doesn't take into account.
1: No, no, no. no into it's I. I is the intra
3: household transfer.
1: I, that's what FI is about. Right. So FI is, uh, you, know, where, you know, what you pay, what you transfer to other members of the family minus what they transfer to you. So women would be getting less FI than, than men. Like in the example of old age care, uh, you know, the men are getting, elderly men are getting this big FI in terms of time. Elderly, some elderly women might be getting a big FI in terms of money, but they're, it's both, both time and money are included in FI. So it's, it's actually quite shockingly individualistic in its
0: orientation. There's one question here at the back, and, and then please the gentleman...
3: You know, l- looking at your equation here, I mean, I guess I'm focusing on the relationship between the G and the other three factors. Yeah. You yeah. Know, and that ratio seems to vary by country to country, and it's completely exogenous
1: to your model. As that ratio falls, do I need to care about these calculations anymore? Well, the, the, that's a great question. I think the big argument over G is, do, by increasing G, do you reduce F? So does government spending crowd out intrafamily transfers... I think there's a lot of historical evidence that it works the other way as well. I'm pretty sure there is some crowding out, but I also think it's a decline in interfamily transfers that motivates the development of G. I also think that that it's actually more efficient uh, from a macroeconomic perspective to to you know because G is basically social. You're you're kind of socializing the risks of caring for dependence uh, through G. So you could ask some interesting questions, like what is the optimal level of G relative to F? Uh, and I think that's probably changing over time, and it's something we need to collectively negotiate. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what the right answer to that is, but I think that it's a good way to... I guess what I'm trying to do is frame that question in a more assertive way.
0: Hi. I just wanted to say that um, this is very interesting, and it has... Um Um, a lot of relevance um, in lower income countries
3: particularly
0: over the the, where government resources are being spent in terms of water electricity, all these um, uh, uh, health and so on because it's not accounted so particularly for poorer people it's not being included um, because it's not seen as actually an investment because it's not accounted so that's the first thing the other thing is that in your talk you keep referring to older people as being a cost and, in fact, I think even in Britain and uh, Western countries that is less the case, because as uh, the demographics work towards getting older in terms of having your child in school longer, working later, etc., cetera, um, in fact, older people are contributing immensely to the family transfers. They're not just refi- receiving.
1: Yes, I, I take your point. I think that's very true, and that... Uh, Grandparents. You you know, ideally, you should be able to look at the contribution that grandparents are making to childcare through that kind of FI. And you're you're absolutely right that uh, life expectancy is increasing, but amount of time in the labor force and age at retirement are going up, and those are to some extent countervailing trends. But it is also true that long-term care expenses uh, for in all of the advanced Countries are, are really very, very high. And that has to do with the very labor-intensive requirements of care for the extreme elderly, uh, especially given the increased incidence of health problems like Alzheimer's disease and dementia. So when I speak of the elderly, I'm really speaking, the, the really crucial category is kind of the 85 and o- older category. And I think they are they are an increasing cost and burden. Whether that's being counterbalanced by increased productivity of the 65 to 85 population is a really important question.
0: Yes, one last question.
2: Um, Yes, thank thank you very much for your um, talk. And um, in answering all these questions, you seem to have persuaded everyone... (laughs) Uh, about your arguments. I don't think we've had any particularly critical questions. They've all largely been ones of detail and elaboration. So what I'm wondering is, where are you going to take this analysis? And I'm thinking, I, just because you have this particular slide up, I'm thinking about you know, the Human Development Index, and that has had some sort of impact in yeah. terms of thinking about different ways of measuring welfare. Um, are, you, are you able to take this analysis anywhere to um, beyond academic audiences into the policy world, where you know that potentially uh, you've been persuasive here. Do you think you'll be persuasive there?
1: Um, actually, the the paper on on which this presentation is based was commissioned for and written for UN Women um, as part of the uh, report they're working on to be published in the spring. Um, but I don't really know yet exactly where it's going but I, I guess I would say mo- most of my empirical research has focused on that WHIHI and I've done quite a lot of number crunching about it and uh, I think it's an interesting part of the story but I've sort of uh, come to the realization that uh, the project of moving the accounting framework forward will require a lot more participation in 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 the effort, so i 'm kind of engaged in a global recruiting effort, uh, which is why i 'm here really
0: uh,
1: uh, really just to try to persuade researchers who are doing work that 's related to these themes to think about how they could combine and coordinate their efforts uh, in a little bit more systematic way, so I guess we'll whether that works or not uh, re- W- remains to be seen. Ask me back in another 20 years. <laughs> thank you. So, I'll be uh, over 85. <laughs>
0: no. But hopefully it's still around. <laughs> so uh, this is a good way to bring this to uh, a close. Uh, thank you uh, very much for uh, coming. We should do now what the French seems to be doing all day, so going and at least drinking, so in the reception again, let me remind you in Columbia House in the first, fifth floor, Columbia House is just, if you exit this building, just walk to the right uh, and uh, please join me again in thanking Professor Nancy Fulber for thank, this Thank you all time. very much. Thank you.